Amen. Uh, just a, a point of clarity, the, the $8,000 was in the last four weeks. We've exceeded budget to giving in the last four weeks of $8,000, which I just thought was incredible on the part of the church. Um, so thank you, church, and we really should celebrate when God's people are generous. That's a big deal. You look at the book of Exodus, and there's all kinds of instances where the people of God celebrate the heart response of generosity. We're going to open our Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there's a blue Bible in the chair in front of you. Uh, Luke's found in the New Testament. New Testament's the back third of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. And the first book is Matthew, second book is Mark, third book is Luke. Good, good, good. Luke chapter 5, picking up with verse 12. Luke 5, verse 12. Now, in the world of medicine, there is good medicine and there is bad medicine. I'm not trying to reduce the work of medicine. I think there is a pretty simple basic premises involved with medicine. You have to first properly diagnose a condition. Uh, we've heard of many anecdotes out there where uh, the diagnosis was wrong and it led to the wrong procedure. Um, I've actually heard of people who were receiving amputation surgeries that went very, very, very well. But the problem was that they removed the wrong appendage. So you, you, you can see where that wouldn't leave someone better off if they're diagnosed wrongly. Uh, you've also heard of a, a right diagnosis, but a wrong prescription to the diagnosis. Go on a Google search today if you have time to kill, which maybe some of us do, I don't know, and look up medical procedures that doctors once thought treated ailments. For example, we have the electric bath. It was one of the marvels of days gone by where electricity and water were mixed together. It looks like a day at the spa, doesn't it? And uh, whoever said that you can't mix electricity with water? I don't know. Uh, for my personal enjoyment, I've been reading a book on the life of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. If you know anything about Franklin Delano Roosevelt, he was, uh, came down with polio in his 30s. And in his 30s, a bad prescription led to more problems for his life, uh, his, yeah, his life and his wife, actually. Uh, due to a bad prescription, Eleanor was told that she should uh, treat his legs with deep tissue massages. And instead of fixing the problem, it was like torture uh, to FDR and probably led to him being unable to walk on his, his own later in life. Now, I don't think anyone intentionally set out to have the intent of harm with these cures. It was just bad medicine, right? It was uh, either a poor diagnosis or a bad prescription for the right diagnosis. Good medicine, on the other hand, is when the diagnosis is accurate and the prescribed treatment does what the doctor intends it to do. Uh, we live in a day and age where medicine is often taking care of diseases. We live in, here on Cape Cod, the glow of the world-class Boston medical community. So we have plenty of examples of what good medicine looks like. Well, with that thought in mind, we're going to go into the Gospel of Luke this morning. And Luke is a good physician, and he takes note of all of the little medical things along the way. So we're going to go on a little medical journey. 
Uh, in this story, Jesus is met by two impossible medical conditions. And as he's responding to these conditions, he's going to once again show his authority. In the second story, uh, as he deals with an impossible situation, it's the first time in the Gospel of Luke that we're met with the Pharisees. Uh, these are the intelligentsia, the religious elite, those who know religion well. And as these interactions occur, we're going to see both good medicine and bad medicine at play. In fact, Jesus will prove to be the good doctor who knows the right prescription for what ails humanity. So we pick up the story, Luke 5.12. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. Now, leprosy in the Bible covered a category of skin infections. Uh, the word leprosy that we think of today is actually the medical illness Hansen's disease. Now, the text tells us that this man is full of leprosy, which means he probably did have Hansen's disease. Uh, many years ago, well, not that many, but 10 years ago, I guess that's not a lot of time, I was in the country of India in a leper colony. So I saw the effects of Hansen's disease upon people, and it's a terrible disease, life-threatening disease. Now, the man in Luke is not only tormented by this disease with the physical wasting away of his body, but there was also social implications and isolation because these types of diseases were communicable, which means they can be transmitted. Lepers were isolated. Not only that, when you would pass by a leper on the street, they would be uh, socially expected to cry out to you, unclean, unclean. And surgeon Paul Brand, who pioneered a tendon transfer technique, saw the effects of this isolation on leopards. He was in India practicing medicine and unable to communicate with one of the lepers that he was about to treat. And so, wanting to reassure the man, he, he reached out his hand and, and he touched him. And tears started rolling down the man's face. He looked over to one of his colleagues, wondering how he had offended him. And she said, no, it's not that you offended him. You touched him, and no one has done that in years. Those are tears of joy. Now imagine, just for a minute, put yourself into this man's shoes. You're a social outcast. You're not even supposed to approach Jesus. You're physically wasting away. You're daring to risk being vilified by breaking the social norm of the day to approach a Galilean carpenter who you've heard anecdotally has demonstrated power and authority. And we watch him say these words to Jesus, verse 12, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. I love what Luke does in the Gospels. Again, remember last week we talked about how he doesn't give us a definition of discipleship. He, he shows us what discipleship looks like. Well, in the same way, faith is one of those things that it's hard to define, but you know it when you see it. Anybody can come along and say, hey, I have great faith. But Luke 
shows us what faith looks like in real time. Look at the words again. First, he approaches Jesus and calls him Lord. Remember, Peter used the same title last time we talked. Remember, that means that I look to you, Jesus, not just I look up to you, Jesus. He also says, if you will, you can. If you will doesn't mean can you, it means what? Will you? Which means he has a faith in what he's heard about Jesus, believing that Jesus has the full power and ability to deal with his medical condition. And we see in the text that Jesus is willing. Because Jesus is willing to break the social convention of the day too. He reaches out his hand and he touches the man. He is not stingy to bring aid when aid is requested by faith. Look there at verse 13. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. Now in the Greek text, that's one word. One authoritative word. Be clean. And the man is clean. Now this word clean is a theologically loaded word. It's wrapped up in disease, or wrapped up in disease, is the notion that diseases and disabilities picture the presence of sin in our world, okay? Now, I want you to listen closely as I unpack this, all right? That doesn't mean, okay, there's a, a worldview system, a religious worldview system that people call divine retribution. That's the idea that someone does something bad and something, some type of consequence immediately happens in their world. Uh, we might say it along these lines, bad things should happen to bad people, okay? So that's a retribution, you do something, immediate response type of situation. Now, Jesus disabuses that idea in Luke 13.4. He says, do you think those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all of the others who lived in Jerusalem? What's the implication? What's the applied response there? No, they weren't worse offenders. He's saying there isn't this divine retribution system where those four, well, they got what they deserve. They got their karma. In fact, what Jesus is saying in the text, what he means is that bad things happen in our world because sin exists in all of us. Do you see the difference there? In our society, we're, we're trying to to relativize evil away. And when you, when you take evil out of your worldview, the concept of evil, then you have no moral response for the evil things that happen in the world. But the Bible never says it like this. The Bible never says that bad things only happen to bad people. The Bible says that these things happen because sin infects everything and it is ravaging this world. I could take 10 sermons, I could preach through this. Uh, there's entire books on this, but I want to move past that to get to what Luke is showing us about Jesus this morning. See, this is the truth. Jesus has the authority to reverse the ravaging effects of sin. That's what's happening in this text this morning. He speaks one word 
be clean. He has good medicine that addresses what is ailing this man. And this, this treatment, this miracle, is far more than just simply taking away this immediate effect from this man. Because what does he do? He says in the next verse, go show yourself to the religious leaders. Now, this was an interesting process. If he was to show himself to the religious leaders, it would take eight days for this consecration ritual to take place. And so for eight days, this man would essentially be walking up to the religious leaders of Israel saying, God's servant Jesus has taken away the ravaging effects of my sin. Testimony, day after day, that he was healed by the authority and the power of Jesus. Now let's move on in the story. We come to another scene, and in this scene, good medicine interacts with bad medicine. We pick up verse 17. On one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Now, Luke is basically like that narrator on the side that says, in walks the religious quacks. I don't want to be too hard on the Pharisees. Uh, we need to at least initially be a little gentler with them. Because if you were reading the Gospel of Luke, it's all of the other participants in the story that you're looking at and you're wrinkling your nose at them. They're just not quite right people. But the Pharisees... The teachers of the law, now these were the respectable individuals in the gospel. In fact, there were four groups of religious leaders in Israel at this time, and the Pharisees were the most respected among them. They were interested in preserving and protecting the law of God. In fact, it was their intention to put a fence around the law of God because it's such a dignified thing. I mean, who, who could uh, fault anyone for doing that? Well, think about this. Poor prescriptions or presuppositions lead to bad prescriptions. Does the law of God need a fence around it? Does it need protection? Does it need us to help it along, or does it do the reverse? Does it help us along? Does the Word of God do that? I think that's why when speaking of the, the law of God, David marveled in Psalm 19, 7 through 10, when he said that the law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The, the precepts of the Lord are right. What the Pharisees are doing wrong here is yes, they're seeing a real problem. They're seeing that the sinful human heart breaks the law of God. But their prescription is completely wrong. In order to prevent that from happening, let's add hundreds of more rules and place those on people's backs. And what happens with this type of religion is it begins to fester. It was marked by superficiality, by technicality, by formality, by legality, and by hypocrisy because lists do not have the ability to change a single human heart. 
It is spiritually inferior. It can cure nothing. Jesus referred to this type of religion as a whitewashed tomb, clean on the outside, dead on the inside. It's like in the 19th century when people used to treat the cough with heroin. Sure, it took the cough away a little bit, but it also added a much bigger problem to their life. All religions fail us. All religions not based upon the grace of God through Jesus, mediated to us by Jesus, led by the power of the Spirit, fail us in the same way. They say, work a little harder. If you put in a little more effort, you'll be made right with God. But this only builds a false confidence. It might treat the exterior problem, but internally something far worse is happening within the human heart. I mean, maybe you attended a church that confused moralism with the gospel. You know, moralism is a type of theology that says, Jesus helps me, but I do most of it. The gospel says, I can't do anything. I need Jesus. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Moralism is the basic false hope of salvation through right behavior and having good morals. It's when you go to church and the preacher's pounding the pulpit saying to you, do better. Do a better job. And, And you're crushed under the weight of the preaching because there's no grace. How can I do a better job? I try to do a better job, but I never meet the standard. Albert Muller notes that in the culture in which he was raised, he says most middle-class Christians divided humanity between those who were raised right and those who were not. But he says hell will be filled with countless souls who were raised right yet died without Christ. Maybe another form of bad medicine today is this moralistic, therapeutic deism. You're like, oh boy, that that really made sense. Sounds a little heady, doesn't it? But let's just break it down to its simple roots. Moral, be better. Though it is some kind of vague sense of morality. Uh, Therapeutic means be happy. Uh, Inherent in the word is what? Therapy. And deism is this idea that there is a God, but God's really not involved in my life in any significant way. So the, the, the major values of moralistic therapeutic deism is these five tenets. God exists, watches over us, but much like a benevolent grandfather who's not really involved in our lives but is concerned that a good time is being had by all. Second, God wants people to be basically good or nice or fair with a mixture of biblical value and cultural value with the 11th commandment, thou shalt be tolerant. Third, The central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. Fourth, God is not needed unless God is needed to resolve one of my problems. Fifth, good people go to heaven when they die. Friends, bad medicine. Bad medicine. You look at both of those and you just ask people that are subscribing to those things, how is that working out for you? How is the just be better philosophy working out for you? Do you ever feel like you meet the standard? How is the just be 
happy philosophy working out for people today. And we live in a time in human history when there's more access to more things, more opportunities, more reason to be happy, and yet you look at the depression statistics and they're not going down. They're skyrocketing upwards. You ever stop and think about that for a moment? Maybe all of the spiritual, medical advice that is being prescribed to us is a bunch of hooey. Maybe it's time to seek out a second opinion. And I think as we're looking at Luke's gospel, we're seeing that Jesus is demonstrating an authority and a power to offer good medicine. We'll see this in another story, another impossible medical condition. Jesus is now preaching in a house, and it's packed full of people. And some friends outside of the house are carrying along their friend who is laying in a bed who has been paralyzed. They can't even get access to the house because it is so full of people. So they decide that they're going to go an alternative route. Verse 19, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. Now, you read that kind of quickly and you're like, oh, that's kind of a cool thing. All right, let's move on. Guys, listen to what just happened here. Okay, these Palestinian roofs were a mixture of mud and clay and thatch, and that was laid over boards. Uh, that, that word tile came from a Greek understanding of a roof, but most likely this wasn't the style of roof that they were dealing with. So Jesus is in the middle of teaching, and he's probably talking about those poor captives, those blind, the oppressed, and as he's speaking, they hear this scraping sound getting louder and louder coming through the ceiling. And suddenly, Jesus pauses in the middle of a sentence when a tool or something breaks through the ceiling and sunlight starts pouring into the room. Now everyone's looking up and nobody's listening to anything. They're just watching this hole get larger and larger and larger until finally a man's body is being lowered down through the ceiling, laid right at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus is so impressed, verse 20, with this act he views it as an act of faith. In fact, the act is so impressive that he decides that he's going to reveal something new about his authority. He looks at the man and says, man, your sins are forgiven you. Now, the religious quacks are sitting over in the corner, arms folded, faces scowl, trying not to make any kind of visible response to the amazing things that they're seeing happening in their midst right now. And they are thinking to themselves, who is this who speaks blasphemies, who can forgive sins but God alone? And that's actually a great question. Who can? Maybe they just don't understand who Jesus is. And in an act of omniscience, Jesus reads their minds and responds to their question, why do you question in your heart? I mean, if that doesn't shake you up, I don't know what will. He's, they're thinking something, and he calls it out in the room. And he says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? 
but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. This is what Luke wants you to see here. Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. The logic is plain. It's easy for a person to look at another person and say, I forgive you of your sins. My, my five-year-old son could walk up to me and say, Daddy, I forgive you of your sins. Now, it would be incredibly cute if he said that, but entirely wrong. But if a, if a person can walk into a room and, and see an impossible impairment and exercise authority over that, which we never see anybody else do, then when that person says, I forgive you of your sins, they're also taking care of the sin problem. In that moment, they have the power and the authority to do that. And we've seen with this same authority, Jesus casting out demons, healing diseases, teaching authoritatively the word of God, and with short, quick, clip commands, he says, rise, pick up, go. And immediately, verse 25, he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And can you just imagine it? That's good medicine. Not only does he have the authority to heal this impossible disease, he also has the right, the power, the prerogative to forgive human sins. And not just the sins of this man, but my sins and your sins. Think of this. I don't understand why we put our hope and our confidence in worldview in any other system that falls immeasurably short of what Jesus is talking about this morning in the Word. Uh, why would we look to any other religious system, any other worldview that doesn't have this verified, authoritative type of work taking place within it. You ask, did Jesus perform impossible miracles? And I'll say, I wasn't there to see it, but his detractors were, and they verify it in writings, in history. The other thing that we think about with Jesus is the greater miracle is yet to come. Jesus rose again from the dead. And if someone rises from the dead, well, I'm going to take what they have to say very seriously. In fact, if Jesus rose again from the dead, everything that Jesus said matters. Every promise that Jesus made should be taken seriously. If he didn't rise again from the dead, I don't know why we're here this morning. So once again, we come to response. Three responses to the authority of Jesus. The Pharisees see the miracle and they call Jesus a blasphemer. That's rejection. He has offended their common sense, consensus beliefs. Surely, even though we're seeing all of these things happen, it can't be right. The crowd responds to Jesus. They see the miracles and they say, we have seen extraordinary things today. Friends, that's acceptance. They love the miracles, but again, they accept Jesus on their terms, not on his terms. As we move ahead, we see an undesirable character, a character who needs 
desperately the transformative power of God to operate in his life. And he responds to a call to become a disciple. Remember, discipleship is the only response that Jesus will accept. He doesn't want to be just another app in your life. He doesn't want to be just another option among options in your life. He wants to be the operator of your life. Verse 27 and 28. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Matthew 9 9 tells us that Levi is Matthew, the disciple Matthew. Coming from this hated class, the tax collectors, the collaborators, the conspirers with the hated Roman occupiers. These were the most vile of vile people according to this culture. They were the traitors. They were the lowlifes. Nobody, and I mean nobody, spent their time with these people, associated with them. Who would do such a thing? But notice, notice that Jesus, again, doesn't go down the conventional pathways when choosing his disciples. It's interesting because you look at the Bible and the God of the Old Testament seems to act the same way. He calls out an idolatrous, wandering nomad named Abram. He, he, he pulls up to the, the level of kingship a little shepherd boy who is the forgotten eighth son of the family. And in the same way, Jesus draws to himself disciples from the marginalized, the outcasts. You know what that means? It means that any one of us has access to Jesus if we will come to him. So Matthew had never had a rabbi look at him with any other look than the look of disdain. And here is this Jesus looking into his eyes, showing genuine compassion for the man and saying, follow me. And Matthew's response is the response of a disciple. He drops everything and he follows Jesus. And now he shows us another principle about discipleship. He throws a party You see, disciples throw parties because disciples want to introduce their friends to Jesus. Look at verse 31. And Levi made him a great feast in his home. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. Now, as we're closing out this sermon, I'm going to share a story with you from a woman named Rosaria Butterfield. Before we get there, I want to quote one of her quotes to you. It's brilliant. She says this, You need to get close enough to people to put their hand in the hand of Jesus. This is what Matthew's doing. He's calling this this hated, despised group of tax collectors the only group that he's ever called friend, and he's taking their hands and he's putting them in the hand of Jesus. Notice what he doesn't say to these guys. He doesn't say to them, Look, You're a bunch of wicked tax collectors. I've just found Jesus, and you're going to have to clean yourself up before you come to my house for dinner. Now, that's that's what the Pharisees wanted. That's their prescription. In fact, look at verse 30. The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat 
and drink with tax collectors and sinners. Friends, bad medicine all over again. Clean up before I will associate with you. Get your life right before you come to God. And listen to Jesus' response in verse 31 and 32. Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Listen here. Can you imagine practicing medicine the way that many people practice religion? <laughs> Just imagine a knife wound victim. And they're bleeding all over the place. They're a mess. And you walk up to this knife wound victim and say, look, you've got to do something with yourself. I mean, these medical doctors, they're a prestigious bunch. They're highly educated. They, they walk around in circles. I mean, they're drinking high-end scotch. You can't go to them like that. You've got you to take that messy shirt off. You've got to clean up that wound. I mean, that's just absurd, isn't it? Who would ever say that to a person? You would say, no, you need to go visit her because you're a mess right now and she knows how to take care of your deepest need. Friends, that's the same point that Jesus is making here. He's saying you don't clean up before you come to Jesus. You don't get your act together so that the, the, the good doctor can take care of your needs. In fact, the good doctor is saying to you this morning through the Word of God, come as you are. Right here. Right now. Are you struggling with the fact that you've been quietly drinking your life away into oblivion because you're trying to dull the pain? Jesus says, right now, where you are, come as you are. Or maybe you walk through the doors of the church and, and you're looking to your right and you're looking to your left and you're thinking, oh boy, these people really have their act together. They seem to know the Bible. They seem to know how to walk with God. And I'm telling you, I'm their pastor and they don't. I know their lives. And it'll blow your mind to hear this as well. I don't have my act together. We're just disciples who have come to Jesus as we are. You see, wherever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus doesn't expect you to clean up to come to him. He expects you to come to him broken, bleeding, wounded so that he can apply the healing salve to your soul. And here's the deal. You'll come to him as you are, but you won't leave as you are. He will take care of that need, which is an important lesson here for the disciple. Because if Jesus lovingly associates with those who are far from God, church, so should we. If Jesus lets someone belong before they believe, then church, so should we. Indeed, here's another principle. The strength of our words should never outpace the strength of our relationship. You see that? How can you put someone's hand in the hand of Jesus if you offend them, if you close yourself off to them, if you reject them outright? Now that principle, once again, comes from Rosaria Butterfield, so I'd better tell you a little bit about her story. I, I first became aware of Rosaria Butterfield at a conference. She was 
sharing her testimony and talking about a book that she wrote called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Now, she was a self-described unlikely convert because, as she says, I was a leftist lesbian professor, and I hated Christians. And then I became a Christian. So let's talk about how she thought about Christians. This was her just immediate visceral response. Stupid, pointless, menacing. That's what I thought of Christians and their God, Jesus, who in paintings looked as a Breck shampoo commercial model. Now, her encounter with Jesus began when she decided to launch an article for a local newspaper, and in her words, this was to launch her first attack against the unholy trinity, Jesus, the Republican Party, and patriarchy. So she wrote this in 1997 in, in, in response to a Promise Keepers convention that was taking place Now, she shares these words. She says, the article generated many rejoinders, so many that I kept a Xerox box on both sides of my desk, one for hate mail, one for fan mail. She was getting a lot of both. But one letter I received defied my filing system. It was from a pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. It was a kind inquiring letter, Ken Smith encouraged me to explore the kind of questions I admire. How did you arrive at your interpretations? How do you know that you're right? Do you believe in God? Now, Rosaria did what most of us do when someone starts poking holes at our common sense consensus belief. She took that letter and she threw it in the trash. But even in that day, It kept nagging at her until eventually she pulled the letter out of the trash bin and she decided to give it another look. She writes, with the letter, Ken initiated two years of bringing the church to me, a heathen. Oh, I'd seen my share of Bible verses on placards at gay pride marches. The Christians mocked me on gay pride day, were happy that I and everyone I loved were going to hell, and that was as clear as the blue sky But that is not what Ken did. He did not mock. He engaged. So when his letter invited me to get together for dinner, I accepted. And immediately a friendship was formed. Ken and his wife, Floy, opened their home and their hearts to Rosaria. They interacted with their friends. They exchanged books together. They got into the nitty-gritty stuff that you're not supposed to talk about, like sexuality and politics. And just as a side, and I, I've done work in many different communities, but there are people, many people, who believe that Jesus wants nothing to do with them because of their sexual orientation. And that's a problem. In many instances, the church has been like the Pharisee saying, first, clean up. Not like Matthew and Jesus saying, come as you are. Albert Moeller, with incredible candor, says this. It's vulnerable. The church's response to this challenge with the compassion of truth means we must check our claim on moral superiority at the door. This is not to minimize the reality of sin, but rather in every way, 
to remind ourselves that our own sin is just as heinous, just as horrifying, and just as deadly as homosexual sin. We must also recognize that we have sinned against homosexuals by speaking carelessly about the true nature of their sin. And then he goes on to unpack that a little bit. I don't have time for that this morning, but I'll tell you, I like how Christians are thinking about this and how to engage people wherever they are. That's very important. In the case of Rosaria Butterfield, the warm embrace of Ken and Floyd provided the space for her to seriously explore a relationship with Jesus. And so in her first year of friendship with them, you want to know what she did? She read the Bible multiple times, all the way front to back, multiple translations. I mean, that kind of makes me feel bad. In one of her parties with her friends, her transgender friend Jay cornered her in the kitchen and said, the Bible reading is changing you. And Butterfield, with tremor in her voice, whispered back, Jay, what if it's true? What if Jesus is a real and risen Lord? What if we're all in trouble? Well, she decided to enter Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. Mm. And there she experienced true conviction under the preaching of the Word of God. She came in as she was, and as people loved on her and as the Word of God was unpacked, she was finally brought to Jesus through John 7, 17. If anyone wills to do God's will, he shall know concerning the doctrine. She said, this verse exposed the quicksand in which my feet were stuck. I was a thinker. I was paid to read books and write about them. I expected that all areas of life, understanding, came before obedience. And I wanted God to show me on my terms why homosexuality was a sin. I wanted to be the judge, not the one being judged. But that night she prayed a very difficult prayer. If you've ever prayed a prayer like this, you know just how difficult it is. She prayed that he would give her the willingness to obey before she understood. And she trusted Christ. And there's much more to that story, and I encourage you to look it up. But the gospel has revolutionized Rosaria Butterfield's life. Maybe this morning, something in Luke 5, something in Rosaria's story aligns with your story. Could it be that Jesus is the good doctor who can take care of your deepest need, as we're seeing here in Luke 5? He also says that if you're willing to come to him and to acknowledge that you are sick, then he will provide the remedy of grace that your heart so desperately needs. Friend, are you ready to trust him in that way? And even if you're not, even if you're just at that point where you're like, okay, this guy's not that wacky, this Bible isn't that wacky. Maybe you're at that place where you're ready to just start exploring faith more deeply with another Christian. I encourage you to do that. That's why we're here. We're here to proclaim the Word of God, to tell the truth as we understand it from the Word of God, and to reach people with the love of Christ. Would you bow your heads with me?